This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane, and it is a pleasure to be broadcasting to you once again. A big thank you to the team from Radio Therapy. Uh, those guys over there are about to produce another youngin, which they have produced a number over the years, I have to say. Another one of them going on maternity leave. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? I am indeed. Did you get wet today? No, I didn't. Did you ride here? Oh, no, I drove my automobile. Yeah. Oh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I chickened out. I, I took one look outside and I was like, mm. But that way I got to listen to more of radiotherapy as well oh, in the car. Yeah, yeah. Very fascinating today. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's pretty interesting weather. Dr. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. You well? I am well. Uh, unlike Dr. Crystal, I did get very wet this morning. I made the silly mistake of going for a run and then uh, two minutes later, a torrential downfall of rain. So I, um, I'm defrosting still at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, this studio is going to heat up soon. And Dr. Jen. Morning, Dr. Shane. You had trouble parking? <clears throat> yeah, there's all sorts of roadworks everywhere. There's a bike ride down around Melbourne Uni and there's roadworks up here and I didn't actually think I was going to make it, but mm. I did happily. I love the fact that the, uh, the ladies... Uh, holding traffic back let me through but rejected you yeah they said i just wasn't cool enough <laughs> just goes to show you can't stop the science We're all and I, was, I was wearing a red jacket and everything red surely meant to be your you know your power play and nothing i did I'm act failing. a bit stupid i will say I acted a bit stupid and they felt sorry for me. I think that was more than anything. Well, you know what they said to me? They said they'd already let too many hooligans through and they were in trouble and they weren't going to let any more through. That sounds about right. Now, let's get into some science news because we have a massive show. We've got three guests coming in today, folks. Um, some very interesting stuff. Dr. Crystal, can we start with you? I see you writing. Are you ready? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I was fascinated this week by a story, a science story I saw in um, Science Advances, which was about what a population deep in the Amazon can tell us about antibiotic resistance. I'm happy to hear there's a population deep in the Amazon still there. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and the remarkable thing is that, that there's some of these groups that are, are still being um, newly found. And so in 2009, scientists first made contact with this isolated village of, um, of people in Venezuela in the, um, the Yanomami uh, Hunter-Gatherer Society who had, had very limited contact, in fact, no contact with, um, with uh, industrialised uh, civilization. Mm. And um, and so they'd never um, experienced uh, uh, what we call modern medicine or or, or the influence of sort of industrialised diets. And this was something that really set off a spark of an idea in um, in the head of microbiologist Maria Gloria Dominguez Bello at the uni- at the New York University. And she thought, well, this population, their gut flora would represent, and, and the the microbes that live in their body would represent a sample that would be untouched by modern medicine and it would be a fantastic insight into looking at how um, potentially how antibiotic resistance may Mm. not have come about because we all know that there's an increase in um, multi-drug resistant bacteria in fact it's one of the biggest health challenges of our time is that we with increasing exposure to antibiotics um, bacteria evolving more and more genes for antibiotic resistance but the question is where did these genes first come from? Mm. And so, um, and so, this this fantastic study that was published this week in Science Advances actually looked at samples of uh, bacteria from the from the gut, from the skin, and from the mouths of these um, these these this tribal village who've been re- 
relatively isolated for 11,000 years. And so basically kind of are a stand-in for a snapshot of what a pre-industrialised population would look like. And so when researchers sampled the um, the bacteria in, in their living in, in and on their bodies, it was um, more than twice the diversity of that seen in a typical US person. And so they have this incredible diversity of bacteria um, that, that has been lost from, from sort of westernised society. Mm. But what was really fascinating um, was that they actually were able to look and isolate genes for antibiotic resistance in these people who had never been exposed to antibiotics. Wow. So they were there anyway. They were there anyway. Mm. Um, they were. They, they didn't have antibiotic-resistant bacteria in that all the bacteria that were isolated were still susceptible to a panel of antibiotics. So they had these genes, but they were switched off. They were not activated at this time, um, which kind of suggests to us that, that these elements have evolved, maybe to help the bacteria deal with toxins that are naturally occurring. Um, some soil bacteria make antibiotic kind of materials in nature, mm. but there were some genes in there that were actually give resistance to synthetic antibiotics that have never been, you know, found in nature. And so it may be that um, bacteria had these elements previously and that they're just poised and ready and that with exposure to antibiotics, they're turned on and amplified and multiplied in the population. So it kind of gives us an insight into where antibacterial resistance may have started mm. and where it's come from. And now this population might be a very interesting sample group to study over time to see if with increasing um, uh, contact with, with more modern medicines and diets, whether or not they're um, antibacterial sort of... Uh, microbiotics change. Very interesting stuff. Very what an ethical stuff. dilemma, though. Can't we just leave them alone? I, know. I, was just, I just had this image of a whole of the guys in white suits going yeah. in saying, yeah, the red stuff, we need a bit of that. Yeah. Well, they yeah. were very conscious of that. They just sent one person in. They really did want to monitor, uh, minimise the exposure and contact, so they just sent one researcher in um, to, to do their sampling. And, and, you know, there's an ethical sort of um, uh, imperative there to treat people, you know, who may have presented with diseases or to offer them vaccinations. And, mm. you know, it, it, it's, it is a it is an interesting question. It's always our, our ethics being imposed. They may have their own set. Absolutely. Yeah, they, yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's interesting. I think we've, we've, I guess we've screwed that up so many times. It'd be nice to see if we can get it right once. Mm, interesting <laughs> stuff. Dr. Catherine? I have some interesting news this week about the risks of eating a short-term high-fat diet. Um, mm, so interesting, yummy. also disappointing for all of us who ate a lot of chocolate over Easter. Uh, so <laughs> Just over Easter? Yes. I'm still getting through it. <laughs> There's heaps around. Uh, so this study was particularly interested in the impact of eating a very short-term, so a high-fat diet over only five days, and particularly looking at the skeletal muscle metabolism. So what we know is when you eat uh, the skeletal muscle, Muscles, which is a big component of our body, makes up about 30% of our body weight, has a very important role in metabolism. So the muscles have a role in terms of taking sugars and fatty acids and, and, and fats and depositing those, um, those molecules. So, and what we know in people with conditions like diabetes and obesity is that the skeletal muscles do not act in the way they should in terms of metabolism. And researchers from Virginia Tech Uni in um, in America were interested in looking at, well, are there some signals early on that actually make the muscles change the way they respond to food? So these researchers took a group of university students who are healthy and asked them to eat a very high-fat diet for five days. 
So in terms of the normal diet, most people eat, uh, in terms of their diet, about 30% of that is fat, uh, 55% carbohydrates and 15% protein. But in these students, they asked them to have a very high fat diet, which was about 63% of that diet was fat. So oh, wow. very... <laughs> That's a lot of donuts. <laughs> that is. <laughs> or, or some other type of food with arches involved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and, and just for five days. And what they did is before and after the five days, they took a sample of their quadriceps muscle, their vastus lateralis, um, so a muscle biopsy, and also did some blood tests to look at the way the muscle was actually metabolising. And it was really interesting. So they found that after just five days of having this high-fat diet, the muscle's ability to oxidise glucose was changed after such a short period of time. And whilst we knew these changes normally happen, this is the first study to show that it can happen after such a short period period of, of five days in otherwise healthy people. And how long did that change last? I mean, did it revert back if they went back to their normal diets or did it hang around for a while? Well, that's a big question. So this really, this study was just a preliminary study looking at before and after changes, but that's what we don't know. So mm. if you go on to eat a low-fat diet for the next five days, does everything reverse back and is it, mm. is it then back to um, back to normal? Well, it could be that if, if you don't have that low-fat diet for, say, a minimum of two months, you may not reverse it at all like you may never reverse it so it could be you know one week on bad stuff 10 weeks off might not be enough Absolutely, and, and that's one of the unknown questions. But these changes are uh, risk factors for people going on to develop conditions like diabetes. So it does show that even after a few days of eating very badly, our body does does start to change. Yeah, apparently uh, Cam is going to talk about uh, booze on um, Eat It After Us, so you don't have to worry about high-fat diets, folks. It's all, <laughs> it's all about alcohol. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? Uh, I want to talk a bit about the placebo effect, which is one of my favourite topics. I find it fascinating. So I think most people get the placebo effect it's basically the idea that you know there's really undeniable evidence now that taking a pill any pill can make you feel better if you believe it will you know even if there's no active ingredients in that do, pill do you want to hear a funny story pill. about that sure i emceed an event on thursday night at the the melbourne museum and as i was driving there i had this shocker of a headache so i grabbed two panadol that i had in my glove box popped them in my pocket I forgot to take them, right? But, but later I thought, you know, I'm feeling much better. Seriously, <laughs> and it's I like got that. home and I found them and I, and I thought, oh, that's odd. And there's all sorts <laughs> of crazy evidence. You know, if you, if you give people fake caffeine, they have much better reaction times. You can give people fake knee surgery. If they've got, like, torn cartilage and you give them fake surgery, you know, they actually have reduced pain afterwards. I did a story right? last year on breakfasters about placebo sleep. The, if you just believe you've had a good night's sleep, even if you don't, you respond as though you have in terms of your reaction, you know, reaction time and energy well, you, levels when you stuff. wake up in uh, you know early morning depending on what time your your phone says you'll yeah. either feel crap or good you know if, yeah. you, if you if you look at it and go oh it's seven o'clock and i still feel this way you, you don't feel good whereas if it says 3am we go <laughs> i'm not doing so bad after all seriously mm. so you know placebos are massive and people argue that maybe that explains why alternative medicines can work because yep. people believe they work even sure. if we know scientifically they don't work anyway so because placebo is so widely recognized it's actually a very important part of all clinical trials we have to take into account the placebo effect but the point is that people show really different susceptibility to placebo some people show significant improvement on placebo and other people show no change at all and that's something that's been kind of hard for us to get our heads around scientifically 
Um, but now there's a whole lot of more uh, new research which has come out which is actually looking at the genes that might be involved in this placebo effect and those genes have been called the placebo, which is kind of a weird <laughs> word anyway. And so researchers have identified at least 11 genes now that will influence a person's susceptibility to the placebo effect and they're all involved in known neurotransmitter pathways so that kind of makes sense why mm. they would be implicated in placebo. We already knew that people who are kind of you know agreeable and extroverted and open to new ideas tend to be more susceptible to placebo but imagine now if you could just go and have genetic screening find out how susceptible you as an individual based on your genetic makeup are going to be to placebo massive um you know possibilities in terms of personalized medicine because there's all these things that, which we know are responsive to placebo so everything from basic pain levels to migraine to depression to parkinson's disease if all these mm. things know to be responsive to are known to be responsive to placebo we're talking quite different personalized medicine and also much better designed clinical trials if you know the people who are taking the placebo you know how responsive or susceptible they are to placebo we're talking quite big advances in our the way we kind of use it i suppose presumably if you had an individual patient and you found out that they were highly susceptible or, you know, they, they were susceptible to it, you could tell them they were ridiculous, you know, the highest we've ever seen. You are so susceptible to placebo. Yep. And, and then they might, the placebo effect on them might be enhanced even further. Seriously. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of mind games. But the fact that we now have evidence that there's a strong genetic basis, I think, is a really important step. Yeah. Mm. Now, uh, smartphones, interesting. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot of talk at the moment about big data. You hear about big data all the time and use of big data. But this is this is something outside of the usual um, biomedicine space where big data is starting to become important. Um, recently, there was a, a basically a magnitude 6 um, earthquake in the Napa Valley. And one of the things that a company over there called Jawbone looked at was gathering a lot of public data about what was happening now keep in mind these days we all have our phones we're all tweeting when things happen in fact locations and strengths of earthquakes are now partially determined by all the information that's being distributed mm -hmm. but we also have each of us has on us a, a device capable of determining our gps position quite accurately to within one or two meters and what um what these guys are thinking of doing um well a guy named benjamin brooks actually who's part of the u.s geological survey is he's thinking about using um people's gps systems in their phones as a large-scale early alert system for earthquakes so what what they want to do is say okay if everyone sort of lurches to the left by a meter <laughs> at the same time there's a pretty good chance that a very significant event is going to occur very soon and this would and this may sound like nothing but this may give them a warning of a large earthquake of something around five seconds now it seems like such a trivial amount you know when we hear about tornado warnings now being up around minutes mm. but if you think about what you can do in five seconds it's quite extraordinary you can turn off gas mains you can turn off power you can move people into locations where they're less likely to get, you know, pummeled by stuff falling off bookshelves and so forth. So five seconds could actually be quite advantageous in terms of, you know, um, one, the one that I love, uh, put the roller door up on the fire station exits. Mm. Because you know, often they lose power and, and or, or structural, can't. and they can't they can't get them out. The mm. emergency services vehicles can't exit their buildings. 
So five seconds would be a lot. And what they've done is they've done some modelling of what would be required. So they modelled a, a, just did an exploratory model of a, a seven magnitude earthquake around a particular fault line and, and whether or not that would work. Then they took the actual data they had from the um, Japanese um, Japanese earthquakes in 2011 that caused the big tsunami and so forth and Fukushima and, and all of those things. And they put all that data in together. They modelled how many people they would require with phones to actually do this. And it's about 5,000. So it's not I mean, if you think about that in the city, it's not it's a nothing. large number at all. Unfortunately, at the moment, it's not as easy as everyone just downloading an app and running that app because the phone companies don't actually give the app makers uh, direct access to the GPS data. So that's kind of a special add-on that they have to do. So it's not that trivial. But it is something that they think they'll be able to do and, and they'll be able to put in place. So they're, they're working on a trial where they take people's phones individually and they have to tweak them to be able to give this data. And if they build up enough data, they should be able to do these predictions. And, you know, five seconds is a long time. So it's interesting how, um, you know, we all have so much information we're walking around with at the moment compared to what we used to, GPS systems, which Mm -hmm. is exactly what, you know, the US Geological Survey and that they used to plant these sensors. And we've talked about this years ago on the show. They plant these sensors everywhere in California and watch them relative to their GPS positioning. Um, that's what we're going around. Mm, exactly. So, yeah, some it is a big awesome. question, though, of who you want to have your data. Well, and this is this is yeah, one of the, the big issues because, in fact, the first time this company looked at this, um, there were some there were some serious concerns about the way the company was using the data it collected, mm. and so now they're now the the US Geological Survey are doing it in an opt in fashion, which is why they were so keen to know how many they would need, which is why it's good that's only five thousand because. If you needed 90% of the population, I think most people would say, you want to know where I am all the time? I don't think so. That's not going to happen. So, it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting interesting model, but it, it should work. So we'll, we'll watch that space. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have in the studio Dr Natalie Thorne, who is the Clinical Bioinformatics and Genomics Project Manager at the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Welcome, Natalie. Hello. Now, you work in this amazing area of genomics primarily, which is, I mean, people will have heard of this, but they probably wouldn't have experienced it. Can you just give us a quick rundown of what genomics is? I mean, I think people have heard of the genome, but even then they probably are not totally clear on what that means either. Yeah, well, I, I usually um, start by talking about DNA and mm-hmm. that the genome is all of your DNA that's in every cell or most of the cells of the body. Yep. And um, so what we try to do is sequence all of that DNA. Um, it's quite a challenging uh, thing to do. There's 300, th- 3 million, 3 billion base pairs, actually. It's like okay. a 1,000 copies of War and Peace. So uh, <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. And you actually, what you have to do is actually chop up uh, that, thousand copies of War and Peace into tiny pieces and sequence the tiny pieces, then put it back together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Okay. And now, one of the things that I always find interesting is we talk about this mass, you know, billions of bits of information, but how many of them are actually relevant to the way our bodies work? Is it all of them or is it just some? Yeah, I think that's something that we're still learning about, but um, as a way to sort of gauge that about 1% of the genome is actually the genes. Okay. The, the, the code for proteins that we know about. So that's the part that we have a pretty good idea about, well, a better idea about it, how, you know, things actually work. The rest of it, we're not so clear about the function. Did you say 1%? Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah. So, so there's 99% yeah. percent that we really don't kind of know mm. much about. Yeah. Although no we, we used to have this term, I remember years ago, people going on and on about the term junk DNA, but that's been dropped now, hasn't it? That's It's no longer the the um, the primary way of thinking of this. Yeah, All so that stuff is useful. That's right. There's lots of things out there that we know something about, That it's just that when we see variation in those parts, we don't really know how to interpret those variations. It's much easier for us, although still challenging, to interpret variations and changes that we see in the genes. Mm. Now, I know when, if I go into a hospital or into a, uh, any sort of pathology scenario, at the moment, I don't think they really are looking at this sort of information. I mean, in, in the Genomics Alliance, what are you trying to get to in terms of using this information to improve people's health or, or prevent issues coming up before they're even, I guess, showing symptoms? Yeah, so that, that's, that's a really good point. There's sort of two aspects one is diagnosing conditions where there's clearly a genetic component. So I guess they're the more simple cases, although I hesitate to say that it's simple, but mm. it's the easier cases. And the other part is um, perhaps trying to predict might, what might, someone might be um, getting in the future. So we're really focusing on the first part and really get trying to get that right. And it's really not just about let's find the variation in, the, in your DNA that's causing um, the disease that you have or the disorder that you have, but also all of the systems around that that support um, being able to do that testing properly. So the right sort of genetic counselling, clinicians really understanding mm. how to use the information and really how, when and what sort of information patients want. Now, there must be a, a, a big issue there with, say, for example, I come in for a test for, you know, gene test for celiac disease and you find something else. I mean, how does that work in the clinical context? I mean, given I'm, I'm asking for... I mean, you have a duty of care, obviously, but I didn't ask for the other information. That's exactly right. Yeah, so the way that... We're actually prototyping how to do this in the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. And the way that we're doing that is, first of all, focusing on um, a range of conditions that we already have expertise on. Mm -hmm. um, and we upfront decide on which genes that we're going to look at that we already know are relevant to that um, disorder that you might be you might have so we're specifically at the moment not focusing on other genes that may for example BRCA or those sort of things so mm. if you come through the door with a you know a disorder um I don't know colorectal cancer or something like that um it's not likely that you want to find out about things you might be getting when you're 50 or 60 or down the line right. Right? we deal with the condition that you have at hand at the moment and then the idea is, and we will be prototyping this in the future, but the idea is then later on we, we figure out the best way of doing that kind of predictive testing yeah. and figure out how we decide and how we counsel and support people to get that information. Mm. And has the major limiting factor leading to these advances now been our scientific knowledge and understanding or has it been money? I mean, I assume that these procedures are suddenly becoming a lot more, you know, financially accessible than they have been in the past. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the financial accessibility that's really driving it because that's what's driven research. And then the fact that research really um, taken genomics um, by storm, really, uh, has really opened up the door for being this being able to be tested out in the clinical scenario. So, mm. I mean, the first genome was done in the early 2000s. It was billions of dollars, took 10 years to do that. Now we can do genomes in, you know, less than a week for, <laughs> they say, about $1,000. Practically, it's probably a little bit more than that. But it's getting within the realms of um, being accessible. And so now's the point of actually preparing for that point in time where it will be um, financial 
financially viable in a healthcare scenario. We, we've had this going on now for a while. Like, the, the, as you say, the, the first genome being um, put together now for, you know, over a decade ago. And there was a, there was, I mean, there's always a lot of sort of accelerated, I guess, um, promotion of benefits when, when that's happening, when funding's coming through for so far. It has to happen in science, I think. But are we seeing the transformation of healthcare that we're expecting or we were told to expect to see at this point? I ask that because when you when you hear about things on the news and so forth, you don't hear that. But I, I suspect in some areas we are seeing it, but we don't, you know, if I go in with a type of cancer, you guys can determine the genomic profile of that particular cancer relative to me and treat me accordingly. Is that sort of thing becoming commonplace or are we still in the exploratory phase primarily? I think there's a, both aspects of what you're saying are correct. There are some tests that are becoming um, used um, in the clinical scenario, for example, for cancer, but mm -hmm. I would say that they're limited in their use at the moment. So okay. a limited number of genes that we actually know if we find something, you know, a variation in that gene that we, we know that we can actually change the course of the treatment for that person. So um, I think cancer is an example of one of the scenarios where there's still going to be a fair bit of work to get to the point where it really benefits all cancer patients. We know it will benefit definitely some and it's worthwhile mm. doing that. Um, I guess on that on that point, really, what we're trying to do is figure out what types of testing and what scenarios it is worthwhile, and that's why I think um, what Melbourne Genomics is doing is really beneficial because we're actually doing that prototyping and assessment and evaluation of when it's useful and what further needs right. to be done to make yeah. it. Yeah, not just the te technique itself, but actually determining whether you should and how you should and all that's of those right. sorts of questions. But there really is a transformation occurring, th mm. th that is for sure, particularly around rare diseases. Mm. Natalie, along with Dr Shane's comments about sort of the clinical applicability of these tests, is there sort of equal access for people who may be living in you know, the major metropolitan Melbourne as opposed to rural areas? Can all people access these tests as part of their sort of clinical workup? Yeah, well... Well, actually, genomics isn't embedded in the clinical, um, in, in the healthcare system at the moment. That's really one of the aims of Melbourne Genomics over the next sort of two to five years is to figure out actually what has to be done to make it so that it's accessible equally to people in different scenarios and different settings. Yeah. So there's, there is a lot of excitement about this technology all across the world. I mean, President Obama talked about the Precision Medicine Initiative in his State of the Union address earlier this year. In the UK, they've launched the 100,000 Genome Project where they want to sequence the genomes of 100,000 people who have um, cancers and rare diseases. What's happening in Australia? So how are we building this momentum and building on this global interest? What programs have we got like Melbourne Genomics that are, that are, that are kind of trying to follow this way? Yeah, so there's there's a few things. There's um, like groups in the Garvin that are spending a lot on the actual sequencing technology, and then there's Melbourne Genomics, like you said. That, and really, the differentiating point for Melbourne Genomics from a lot of other initiatives is that we're not really trying to do, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of numbers of, of people. What we're trying to do is the, the the patients that we're looking at. We're trying to look at it as a whole of system. How does every single patient respond, what are their experiences, what do we need to do, what information do they need, How do the what do the clinicians need. So really the whole of system, how does that going to have 
have the change in the healthcare system for this to work so that we are going to be able to do this routinely in the future. Um, so that, so as I said, there's, there's Melbourne genomics, there's sequencing going forward in, in other centres and um, we're currently working on a bid for a national approach to genomics, which is really about trying to tie together all the expertise um, and, I guess, um, yeah, across the across mm. the nation. Natalie, I know down at the Melbourne, uh, the Royal Children's Hospital on the Melbourne campus there, um, they're introducing the EPIC electronic health record. It would seem to me that a lot of this stuff is just, you know, almost going to be hitting a brick wall if an electronic health record is not available across Australia, let's say Melbourne to start with, but then across Australia, because you know, what's the use of having some of this information if you go to another clinician and they can't access it? Is, is that going to be a, is that a brick wall we have to get through for this to really change the way we, we look at health? Yeah, look, I, I'm really not that familiar with electronic medical records and the, the challenges that they've got there, although I know that there are some challenges. I guess the way we're trying to focus on it is um, a genomics um uh, availability or a connectedness of genomic information across the country and I think that obviously that sort of um, infrastructure is going to be needed so that um, you know in Sydney people who have been tested for similar diseases that they have in Melbourne or in in, in um, Queensland have access to the the, the variations and the, and the that have been seen in other places so there's going to be a lot of power in connecting that information, that genetic information, and that will have to be done. So as to how that connects with electronic medical records, that definitely is going to be a challenge, but I think there's still a lot that we can, be, we can do without necessarily relying on overcoming that barrier. Hmm. We can be doing that in parallel. Look, it's fascinating stuff. Unfortunately, although fortunately we have two other great guests coming in, we're going to have to leave it there, but maybe we can get you back to talk about this further because there's, there's certainly a lot um, going on with the Genomics Alliance and it'd be great to get continued updates as to how that's progressing and how those processes are progressing with regards to using this information. Natalie Thorne from the Clinical Bioinformatics and Genomics... Oh, is the Clinical Bioinformatics and Genomics Project Manager at the Melbourne Genomics Health Alliance. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Now, we have in the studio Dr Chiara Paviolo from Swinburne University of Technology. She's a postdoctoral research fellow out there. Welcome, Chiara. How are you going? Good. Hi. Now, you, um, well, we're going to talk about something interesting here because you work in the area of gold nanoparticles, and normally when we talk about that, we go straight into engineering discussions. Yes. But you're looking at this as an alternative to things like chemotherapy and radiotherapy in cancer treatment. So, Let's start with the gold nanoparticles. Yes. What's special about gold? I mean, everyone knows gold's special, but once you get down into small sizes, why is it so special at that size? Okay, so I'm working with tiny little particles. They are kind of uh, 10,000 times smaller than the width of a hair. Mm -hmm. And when you go down to this dimension, gold um, has new interesting properties. Um, so first of all, when you shine it with a light, with a laser light, then it's able to generate heat. So it absorbs light and generates heat. But also it's really easy to chemically modify on the surface and to mm -hmm. attach new protein on the surface. And most importantly, it's inert. So it means that over the time it doesn't really modify and it's quite stable in a, in a, chem in a chemical way. 
Hmm. Does, does it retain those features that, you know, gold has that we all love? Like it's easy to shape and mold and, you know, can, can, you, can you shape gold nanoparticles any way you like and do funky things with them as well? Uh, yeah, it's, it's really easy. So um, uh, researchers, they've already shaped different particles such as spheres and rods, prism as well. So it's really easy to really have the shape that, you, that you'd like. Hmm. Okay, now let's move from there to cell receptors because this yes. is the other area where, where you're bringing this together. Exactly. Let's talk Talk about cell receptors. Define those for me. How do they work? Okay, so every cell on the border, they have proteins. And this protein, they have the cell to communicate with the outside and inside of the cell. Inside, you have the nucleus. And every signal that comes from the outside of the cell to the nucleus then changes some responses in the cell. So cell receptors, they are... Um, biologically designed to communicate with the outside and to, che to change the, um, uh, the communication with the nucleus. So um, I'm working with cancer cells, cervical cancer cells, and this cell, they uh, express a specific protein on the cell membrane, which is called the epidermal growth factor. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm specifically, specifically targeting with my gold nanoparticles. Okay, so... Um why gold nanoparticles? Then, I mean, what, what's happening with this particular this protein and so forth? I mean, oh, you mentioned it was a nurse. So you yes. wouldn't expect it to interact with them at all. Yes, because the nanoparticle, uh, they are functionalized, which means they attach a specific protein to my uh, particles, okay. and this protein attached to the cell receptors. And so these nanoparticles, they are tiny, and they have the same dimension or, let's say, um, kind of shape of dimension that my cell receptor. So that's why they are really useful to be attached to the cells. Hmm. And and when you so you functionally so you, you're changing the other properties of these um, golden nanoparticles. Yes. So they, they they mimic some biological item in that sense. And then yes. what, what are they? So in terms of you know dealing with sort of um, problems with these cells, I mean, what are they actually doing? So um, after they get attached to the to the receptor, um, we are still trying to understand why. But basically, they um, they change the um, uh, the communication between the outside and the nucleus. And what it does is stop cell proliferation. And this is particularly important with cancer cell because we were able to not only stop cell proliferation, but after a while, uh, the cell they also died. So you mean cell reproduction? Of, yes, you know, exactly. reproducing themselves. So this yes. is the big problem with cancer is that it just grows out of control, right? Yes. And, and they never die. So they grow out of control and they don't die. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. <laughs> and so you've knocked both out in, in the one go. Yes, so we stopped the cell proliferation and then after a while they died, yes. Are, are there any, I mean, you, you can imagine there being significant side, I could imagine there being significant side effects to using these sorts of materials in the body. Are, are you seeing other problems with other cells or you're not at that stage yet? Uh, we're not at that stage yet, but I know there are some other studies and there are actually, this is a really hot topic in science. So uh, a lot of people, they are trying to use gold nanoparticles for cancer cell therapy, but also for stimulation of, of cells. So um, there, there, is, there are some controversial studies in the sense that some people, some studies, they say that it's uh, extremely safe to use the nanoparticle in the body. Other studies, they say that they can um, increase the oxidation of the cell as well. So, um, yes, it's, mm. it's a controversial problem. Mm. Catherine? So 
are there studies or practices at the moment in other types of cancer that are using these gold nanoparticles to treat people at present or is it just still basic science research? So my research is still basic science but I know that there are other people um, working with nanoparticles but for different purposes such as they functionalize the particle with drugs and they use it for drug delivery directly on the cancer cell and other people um, they use it for photothermal therapy so as I mentioned before gold nanoparticles they are able to absorb light and to release heat uh, so this research group, they are using this heat to directly kill the tumour. And they've done a lot of uh, tests in animals, so in vivo. And I know in the state they're also moving to test it to human as well. Mm. It's interesting stuff. I mean, the one question I've always had, I, I used to work in related fields, was... How do you know whether or not this stuff has left the body or been expelled by the body? These are nanoparticles, yes. so you need something like a scanning electron microscope or an atomic microscope, atomic force microscope to view them. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm never really sure, you know, I look at what I've gone to develop in the bathroom and, you know, do I have my nanoparticles out or not? You can't, I mean, how do you determine whether you are losing the nanoparticles out of the person's body or they're being retained? Well, it's difficult to say. So a lot of studies that say they are retaining different organs in the body. Mm. Uh, it's difficult to say uh, if they are totally eliminated or, or not, to be honest. It's mm. true. Well, Kara, look, it's it's very interesting work, and um, uh, we'll have to watch this space because I think this is one of those areas where we don't we don't really know why it's it's happening. But the fact that you you've managed to both shut off this cell reproduction yes. and shut off its ability to do anything useful, or you know that that all or useful when I say that I mean as a cancer useful yes. for cancer, <laughs> but very unuseful for us, um, is intriguing. And hopefully, um, we'll be able to work out why and and use that as some sort of therapy in the future. Yes, exactly. This is what we are working on at the moment. Fantastic. Chiara Paviolo, a PhD from Swinburne University of Technology, a postdoctoral research fellow there. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. We uh, have a yet another guest. We've had so many guests this year. It's quite exciting. We've been um, pushing the envelope of getting more and more guests in the studio. I love profiling all the fantastic scientists here in Melbourne. I know. And, you know, the more guests we in, the less we have in, the less work we have to do, <laughs> which is a side effect. No, we have Professor Joe Douglas, who is the head of the Department of Immunology and Allergy at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Welcome, Joe. How are you going? Hi, Shane. How are you? Now, it's uh, it's an exciting period. A lot of stuff going on. Um, let's start, first of all, with um, World Allergy Week, because that's uh, I think we're still in that. Tell us a bit about that. So, indeed, we are. And allergies are a really common condition in the Australian community. Mm. As many as one in five people suffer from allergies, and it costs the Australian economy about $20 billion a year. So it's wow. a huge burden yeah. of disease to both individuals and also nationally. And one of the problems is that for people to access specialist care for allergies is actually difficult. There's not a lot of allergists on the ground. People talk about mm. long waiting lists and difficulties really accessing top-level care, and so we're hoping to improve that. The National Allergy Strategy has been conducted, uh, produced with a coalition of the... Um, Anaphylaxis and Allergy Australia, which is the consumer group, and also the ASCIA, the Australasian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy, the professional group of people who look after allergies, in an effort to say how we can actually improve the delivery of care for people with allergies so people can get the appropriate care and get hopefully the sort of cure. And also it will target the sort of research that might really make a difference to the mm. very many number of kids and families that are affected with things like food allergy and that, and also the severe allergy anaphylaxis, whether that be due to foods or drugs and things that really really is 
causing a, a great burden to both the health of the society and individuals, but also risk to life and so on. Mm. At what point should a person seek that sort of professional care for, for allergies? I mean, if someone has, I mean, we, we see some people who suffer from hay fever terribly, and it's not in the, the same category, I suppose, as someone who has an anaphylactic reaction to a particular food. But where on that spectrum should you sit before you go and see a specialist? Yeah, Shane, I think it's a really good thing to say that hay fever is not on the same spectrum. It doesn't, perhaps hay fever, I always say, is never going to kill anyone. That doesn't mean mm. it doesn't really impair people's life. Definitely. And I, I always see teenagers around the middle and towards the end of the year when they're getting their bad hay fever and they say, hell, I've got exams now. What am I going to mm. do? And they don't want to take antihistamines because yeah. they're frightened it'll make them dopey yeah. and so on. And it's a real issue for them and it affects their sleep and therefore their quality of thinking and their capacity to perform. So I, I don't write off hay fever at all as a major mm. burden. Right. The first point of call, a lot of people turn to their pharmacist and that's fine. The general practitioner is also someone who knows, um, who can have a really good idea. And indeed, that's the gateway to specialist care because you need yep. a referral from a GP to see a specialist. But on the other hand, if your treatment, if, if the treatment is not really controlling your symptoms well, there are lots of specialist treatments that can be offered, like such things as desensitisation in the case of hay fever, which can really make a durable difference. And it's the closest thing we have to a cure. And that is access through specialists. So that's the sort of time that if the usual treatments aren't working, it's really good to think about going one step further and getting a specialist appointment then. Mm. Now, immunology is one of your big things. Uh, World Day of Immunology is coming up on the, the 29th, so we're only a yep. few days away from that. What's the theme this year? So the universe, it's Mythbusters, so it's trying to help break the myths and improve people's knowledge and understanding of the immune system. I guess the immune system is so broad and affects so many um, aspects. So the, the, there's a, a lecture to be held, a public lecture from the University of Melbourne on the 29th that's advertised on the UniMel website, and that particularly looks at, um, at cancer and as well as um, effects of the immune system in terms of allergy, so the immune system being overactive mm. and also the involvement of the immune system in cancer. So that sort of thing are really important areas that can be thought about in, in relation to the immune system. We often don't think the immune system involves just about so many things, but it can be both over and underactive, and all those things can impair people's health, and there are opportunities to improve treatment and delivery of care for all those aspects. Can, can you give us an idea of a few of the myths that are widely held? <laughs> put you on the spot. It does put me on the spot, but <laughs> I'll go for the one people talk about, which is perhaps the hygiene hypothesis. Oh, yeah. It was around about 20 years ago that we didn't, we're all too clean, and that's why allergies have got worse. And whilst there's some Something about that. It's not just the fact that allergies are worse. In the past 20 years, not only have allergies increased, so allergies, if you like, is the immune system being overactive and causing a harmful mm -hmm. response to things that otherwise aren't harmful. But in the case, um, but also the immune system can be overactive and actually attack itself, so-called autoimmunity, and those diseases have also increased in the same time. And so the question of whether we're all too clean is probably far more complex than just how much dirt mm -hmm. you've got on your floor. But things like our microbiome is becoming, that is the bacteria and things that grow on our gut and on our skin that we actually host. The changes in that in the past 20 years, there's a great deal of interest that in fact regulation of the immune system is more important than just how dirty or clean one is and it's those sort of more specific things that we can possibly look at intervening to make a difference that opens the way for different sorts of studies that might allow us to intervene. So I think that's a really fascinating area of research that the answer's not up but mm. perhaps greater studies allowing us to understand better the mechanism of why um, hygiene or cleanliness is important. I, I I always find the, the sort of research direction um, for, for this immune system stuff to be fascinating because in, in areas like cancer and so forth, the target is pretty clear. You know, you kill the cancer, you try not to kill the patient, bang, you're done. Sounds simple, but, you know, that's it, it's fairly directed. In your case, I mean, you need to keep people's immune systems firing and working. And at the same time, 
you kind of, in some sense, need to turn them off. How do you how do you deal with that duality of need that an individual has when, when say, for example, their their system is hyperstimulated or mm. or attacking the body itself or any of those examples? Yeah, you well, get? that's a really common question in clinical care. So what you do is weigh up the benefits of um, immunosuppression depending on the severity of the disease versus the potential complications. And perhaps a really good example I could use there is transplantation. Mm-hmm. So I've had a little bit to do in my life with lung transplantation, and you really need to dampen down the immune system to cause the body not to reject the foreign lungs that are that have been implanted but on the other hand by suppressing the immune system you leave the individual open to infections and then mm. that's a really major cause of illness and sickness and morbidity of those who have had um, a solid organ transplant or particularly lung transplant so it is a very fine balancing line and i think that's often as much art as science in terms of trying to get it right for an individual and because no person's immune rejection or the response to the foreign tissue is the same as any other and we don't understand the fine details of that well enough Mm. so following up on that joe what are the um what are the opportunities that personalized medicine and personalized care are opening up in the fields of allergy Mm. I think that's a really good question and that's a great one to think about the future. I'm really excited by the opportunities in, say, asthma, which is a personal area of research interest of mine. And one of the areas there is it used to be said all asthma is asthma and it's all the same. And, of course, it isn't. We've always known that some people have mild asthma that gets better with a tickle of inhaled steroids and others, um, despite everything you throw at them, have terrible asthma that seems to progress. And more recently, understanding the underlying immunological basis of that has allowed us to uh, design some of the more um, the monoclonals the more refined drugs that actually target one specific limb of the immune system can be spectacularly successful in the right individual and as that starts to be opened up we have more tools to play to understand the molecular nature of the disease allows us to really make a huge difference in people who are previously very difficult to treat so whilst the blanket treatment copes very well for perhaps 19 out of 20 people that one in 20 that really suffers can be given a really great opportunity to live a quite different life with Mm. the newer medication so personalized medicine in that area is in the next decade going to huge is starting to change because some of those drugs are available to us now but in the next decade when more of them are will really change the way we treat and what we can give to people with severe asthma one of the things i find fascinating is when uh, you know i read about these new approaches to dealing with certain cancers and so forth that involve utilizing our own immune system so mm-hmm. rather than just those um well I, I call them mechanical when you're putting radiation sources in someone's body and and similar techniques yeah. you know these these new approaches towards using our immune system i mean what are your thoughts on that and and does that is that something that from your perspective will be the future of dealing with some of these conditions yeah so what they basically those approaches and this is not an area of my research but it is an area where what we're doing is perhaps helping the body to specifically target the very the molecular abnormality that's caught that is associated with the tumor and therefore there's not the same side effect that you'd get from a chemotherapy mm. drug which basically targets any cell that's replicating and therefore has a whole lot of unwanted side effects and so the specificity of that immunological approach offers tremendous opportunities and that's really where so much of the the newer treatments for cancer particularly in things like melanoma grant macarthur is talking on the 29th and he's that's his area of expertise and it really is a um, an area where it has changed dramatically the the effectiveness and the opportunities available for what was is a devastating cancer that was often inexorably progressive but it's really been changing hugely with mm. these new treatments and offering new hope and length of life to people which is great mm. now joe just getting back to the day of immunology i mean you mentioned the uh, talk on the 29th at the university of melbourne are there other activities 
or ways in which people can get involved uh, or learn more about this? Uh, it's mainly the, the talks and the activities mm-hmm. on that night and the public lecture will be the thing we'd encourage people to attend. Hmm. There's a fantastic website if, yeah, you, if you Google Day of Immunology. Fantastic. Great. Thank you. And, and just finally on your um, your work in, in asthma and so forth, I mean, is, are things progressing there in asthma? I mean, I, I don't, it, it doesn't seem as, I haven't come across as many people who are severely asthmatic as I, I suspect I once did. Are they, are they being treated better or are there fewer of them? What's happening in asthma? So asthma is one of our great public health success stories. If When I was a very young doctor, there were over a thousand um, people dying every year of asthma mm, in Australia yeah. and it's now less than a third of that wow. and moreover the demographic of those people dying not that anyone dying of asthma is a tragedy but 20 years ago 30 years ago it was the 15 to 34 year old age group that was the top of the, yeah, the ma- most numeric, numeric group now it's the over 55 so it's older people who are dying quite a different group so those younger people in whom one would assume asthma death is preventable are being prevented and so that's been the greater utility use of treatments that have been got out to the community particularly in hail corticosteroids um, have really made a huge difference to to asthma and have been shown to be life um, life-saving at a community level when really applied and that has happened and so now asthma research is increasingly focusing on those that smaller number probably about five percent of people with asthma who are not controlled with these treatments mm. and in concert with that drop in mortality asthma admissions have gone down it's still really common to have emergency presentations but admissions and things have gone down it's just not so such a, a major problem. So it's a terrific success story of pharmacology, but also public health and getting the message out. Things like the National Asthma Campaign and things changed what was a pharmaceutical intervention, actually got it out so GPs and things could really use it oh, with dear. patients and translate. Sounds absolutely fantastic. Now, it's uh, the website is dayofimmunology.com.au. .org.au. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Professor Joe Douglas, thank you so much for coming in and uh, really interesting work and great to hear those stats on asthma and so forth. Uh, good luck. Hope you have a good time on the 29th. Uh, enjoy the day. Yeah, thanks a lot. Professor Joe Douglas, head of the Department of Immunology and Allergy at the Raw Melbourne Hospital. We're pretty much out of time. Dr. Crystal, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Dr. Catherine, good to see you. Yes, thank you very much. And Dr. Jen? Had a ball, as per usual. Thanks. (laughs) I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.